This morning we're looking at two ways to kill your connection with God and undermine your efforts to live a truly good life. And uh, this is where we get to in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been teaching us uh, what it looks like, the shape of a life lived in the kingdom of God, lived with Jesus, and uh, it's all been challenging and inspiring and helpful. And now in chapter 6, he's going to address two things that will get in the way of this and uh, that will undermine all the good work that we've done up to this point. And he says, this is it. Uh, He says, if you really want to uh, damage your spiritual connection with God, and if you want to undermine your efforts to lead a good life, build your life on the approval of others and build your life on the possession and accumulation of material wealth. And that's what he unpacks and talks about in uh, Matthew chapter 6. So today we're talking about building our life on the approval of others. And after Easter, we'll think a bit about what does it mean to build our life on the accumulation of material possessions. And both are toxic, both destroy our connection with God, our life with him, uh, everything that is good uh, about our lives. Which, of course, raises the question uh, in our minds, how will building my life on the approval of others disconnect me from God and make me miserable? So I'm going to try and convince you that it will. I'm going to try and show you that it's a really not a smart way to live, captive to the approval of others. Uh, And I'm going to show you not just why it's not a good way to live, but the positive instruction for building a great life and connecting with God that Jesus then Uh, advances and gives us and offers us. Um, The approval of others is not necessarily a bad thing, though, is it? Like, we all need it. So it's not necessarily bad. In fact, I don't know if you have any memories. I have have clear memories of uh, my kids uh, when they're little, you know, Oliver learning to ride his bike uh, back in, down in Melbourne, there was a, a school right next to the house we lived in, and on the big school AstroTurf playground, Oliver on his bike, whizzing down this, you know, whizzing across the, the AstroTurf and, and yelling, looking back, yelling at me, look at me, Dad, look at me. And that's what, I mean, we, we all have that, don't we? When we're little kids, it's not just that we want to do something, it's that when we do it, we want... Uh, the significant people in our lives, most particularly our mums and our dads, to look at us and go, wow, you're great. That is fantastic. Uh, as, a, as a kid growing up um, without a dad around from a young age, for me, uh, the, the lack of a dad to, cry, a dad to look at me was, was a massive hole in my life. Uh, so I spent the first 15 years of my life trying to get everybody else to look at me and say I'm okay. Uh, and I'd remember... Uh, you know, playing, I played representative sport and did a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and whenever I came off the sports field, it didn't matter how I'd played. What mattered was that I wanted the key people like the coach to notice how I'd played. And that's normal and that's okay. But Jesus says, if that is what continues to control us and shape us, if that's what we live for, in the end, it's a recipe for a miserable life. Uh, look at what he says. We've just heard it read. Um, and, uh, and this is what he says here. And he uses, um, well, that's not the text. Uh, he says here, be careful. This is the way Jesus puts it. 
he's not talking about riding a bike or playing sport, is he? He says, uh, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's, you know, and so he's picking, he's got a group of people who've come into the kingdom of God. It's going really well. They're like, yes, I'm connected with God. This is awesome. And he says, ah, if you, be careful. Be careful of the trap of religious respectability and practicing your piety in order to have other people think you're really pious and great because it's going to make you miserable. It's going to kill you. Uh, it's going to be uh, something that will actually disconnect you um, from God. Now, what's important to notice, what he isn't saying is, be careful that nobody sees that you are righteous. Okay? He's not saying that. There are some people who, who assume this means we have to have a very private and secretive faith. And in particular, he'll use the illustration, as we'll see later, about giving. And they'll say, well, no one should ever see what I give. Uh, mostly my experience of people like that is they're hiding what they're giving because they don't want people to see what they give because they're a little ashamed of it, typically, that response. Um, it's not saying that because it's, it, people can see our righteousness, can't they? Like, I can see that you're here. Now, the question is, I can't avoid it. You're here. You're practicing your righteousness in front of this group of people. Does that mean there's no reward for you? Does that mean what you're doing is intrinsically wrong? So should you really just stay home in your closet and pray, you know, live stream Hillsong into your closet so no one can see you worshiping? No, no. What, what do you think the key is? When you look at this verse, verse 1, what's the key? It's this little phrase here, right? It's actually a purpose clause that you could translate, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. And here Jesus goes right to the heart, doesn't he? As we've seen right through the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is really concerned about is where our hearts are at. Our external behavior can be... Uh, it can vary enormously. One person can come to church... Um, in order to worship God, completely unaware and not thinking at all what other people will think of them. Another person can come to church and on the surface look exactly the same, but they're coming and practicing their piety and their righteousness in order to be seen, in order to get the approval of others. Uh, so um, why is it so bad? Why is building my life on the approval of others so bad? Why will it disconnect me from God uh, and make me miserable? Well, there's a whole lot, lot of reasons. One of them is this. It puts human beings in the place of God, right? It put, puts human beings in the place of God. So this is what I mean. Uh, we, um, it's a good thing to have people's approval, but it's a deadly thing if we make it ultimate in our lives. If somehow having people approving of us is uh, critical or essential to our well-being, becomes the foundation on which we live, it actually replaces God. So the whole teaching of Christianity is that God is to be the one who gives us life. God is to be the one who is the foundation for our lives. God is to be the one who is the center of our being and our existence. When I put uh, your approval or the approval of a, 
absent father figure as the thing that I have to have to make my life meaningful and worthwhile, then I'm actually putting a person in the place of God. And that's why uh, Jesus says, look, this is the challenge. If you do this, you'll get no reward from your Father in heaven because you don't want it. You've, you're getting your reward from the people that you've put in place of God, so be satisfied with that reward. Okay, you're replacing God with people. Uh, so, so that's a problem, right? That is a problem. Uh, now, there's a problem psychologically as well or developmentally, um, and the problem is this, we, we were looking at this just this morning in, our, in the Young Families group uh, that meets before church. Uh, developmentally, if I live always only for your approval, I, I don't internalize or develop what the psychologists call an internal locus of control. That is, I don't learn to live for values. I don't learn to live from a sense of a well-defined and well-developed sense of self. I can't ever say no to somebody whose approval I need because if I say no, I might, I might lose that love and that approval and that respect and then it will feel like my life is over. Uh, now, why is that problematic? Well, uh, what's the definition of a slave? Well, let me rephrase the question. What's the difference between a slave and an employee? What's the key difference? Free will, choice. Yeah, an employee can say no to their boss. You can just say no and mean it and walk away. A slave can't. So if you uh, are captive to the approval of others, you can't say no to them. You're a slave because if I say no, the withholding of love, the withdrawal of approval, the lack of connection feels like it's the end of my life. Uh, highly compliant kids often uh, are wonderful when they're little. They can never say no to mum or dad because of the fear of withdrawal of love or extraordinarily harsh consequences. Uh, and of course, there's two ways highly compliant little kids who've never been able to say no to their parents grow up. They either grow up to be highly compliant adults or highly oppositional and rebellious adults. The highly compliant adult who can never say no is a slave to other people. How does that work out? Well, I mean... If you've ever talked to somebody who's trapped in a, in a, a family or relationship of uh, abuse or domestic violence, you'll know the slavery that they're in, the captivity that they're in to the approval of the other. So even the distorted, misshapen, abusive, destructive, damaging, even life-threatening abuse of the partner is better than no partner. They can't say no. They can't step away. They can't get out. It's... Because that's what they've built their lives on. Often because that's, uh, you know, that's a legacy from their family of origin. Um, here's a diagnostic. Now, now we all, there are, there are all, we, we need people's approval. But how do you know if your need for someone's approval and, and acceptance is falling into the toxic category that Jesus talks about, if you're doing your piety, your life, in order to get their approval, well, you know it if you can't say no to them. If, you, if, if the thought of losing their approval or connection fills you with dread or anxiety or anger, right? Uh, so here's a diagnostic question, uh, and you could fill in the blank, and it goes like this. If X rejects me, 
then my life feels like it's not really worth living. Yeah, think about that. Who would you, would you put someone in there? If your child rejects you, I mean, this, I, you know, I see lots of parents like this where they, they, they live for the approval of their kids. So if my child rejects me, then my life is kind of over. Or if my partner rejects me, if my work colleagues don't think well of me, if my boss rejects me. You see, what, what underlies so much workaholism in our culture? Right? Well, it's actually an inability to say no and set healthy boundaries because I'm terrified that if I do that, my boss will reject me. Now, why are we worried about our boss rejecting us? Because we've grown up in families of origin where uh, saying no um, and uh, generally is met with a withdrawal of love or an attack. And so then you take that experience as a little kid. If you say no to your mum or your dad, you get hammered or you get isolated and rejected. And you take that and when, you, when, when your boss asks you to do you know, an extra 10 hours that week or the, the demands pile up, what you're, how you're responding is just like a little four-year-old kid whose father or mother is withdrawing love or attacking you because of your saying no. So you can't say no, so you're a slave. And that happens in our religion as well. We, go, we, we, we bring that into our piety, into our righteousness, and we say, well, I, I, I'm just controlled by what other people think of me. And it's psychological slavery. It's emotional slavery, isn't it? Uh, as well as being idolatry. Um, so here's a problem with that, right? Is when I can't say no to somebody because I'm living for their approval, my yes is meaningless. It's not a real yes. I'm just saying yes because I'm too scared to say no because I don't want to lose your approval. And what happens then is I become a hypocrite. And so why this is so psychologically damaging is that it actually tears us apart internally. And again, we had this discussion this morning as we were looking as talking about this and said, you know, Jesus, Jesus understands the human condition way better than any psychologist. And it's like all the psychologists are playing catch-up with his teaching. This is, um, this is how Jesus talks about it uh, later in his culture. Um, uh, everything they do is in Matthew 23, talking about religious leaders, everything they do is done for people to see. <laughs> That's it. They love to be greeted with respect. They love the place of honor. Um, they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels, the phylacteries are the, um, the little boxes that contain the law wide and the tassels, the, the tzitzis, the prayer garments wide. They love to be noticed and accepted. And it's all wonderful and they're all very religious and everyone thinks they're great, right? But inside they're a complete mess. Inside they're a complete mess because they're hypocrites. Right? Um, uh, they're hypocrites. And it's terrible to be a hypocrite when what I'm like on the outside is different to what I'm like on the inside. We think it's working for us, but actually it's very destructive of our souls, isn't it? Now, here's something I didn't know before I studied this this week. Do you know there were lots of theaters? Even in Jerusalem, there was a big theater. Uh, and uh, so, so it was very common. People knew what what actors were, and the word for hypocrite comes from uh, the Greek word that was also used for actors. And, of course, when you're acting in a play, you, you put on a mask and you do something that isn't you. 
But being an actor on a play is fine because the play ends, you take the mask off, and you go back to being you. What's so psychologically destructive about being a hypocrite is you never get to take the mask off. So you never actually get to be you. I mean, who are you really? If you can't say no to anyone and you do everything for the approval of others, well, who are you? Well, you're just an amalgam of everybody else's expectations. And where's you in all of that? And where's the consistency between what's on the inside and what's on the outside? And it gets worse, right? Uh, the people whose love and approval you really need find it very difficult to love and approve of you because you're a hypocrite. Because you're a, you're a shifting shadow of a being, of a self. Because who you are as a self is a function of what other people think of you and what other people think of you shifts and changes. So where's the constant you that someone can actually love? Who is the you that someone is to love? Um, I, I find this, um, I mean, isn't this so true? I mean, I, this has this this always been a human problem. We, we bemoan, don't we, the millennials and the rise of the selfie generation. And, oh, this is terrible. You know, I mean, what, what I love about selfies, go and Google um, all these footage of people actually injuring themselves trying to take selfies, right? And some of them are very funny, but actually, they're very sad. They get killed. Like people fall off, you know, the, fall off the uh, the wall next to Niagara Falls and go down the falls because they're taking a selfie. Right? It's tragic. But that's always been the case of the human heart. Everything they do is done for people to see. I mean, that is, isn't that? That's our culture, right? We've just got technology now that broadcasts this out to everybody. So it's like twenty four seven. I'm living, I'm trying to construct a self based on what you say about me. So I feel valid and valued because of what you say about me as I'm a hypocrite. Um, I mean, developmentally, you see, this is so significant because I develop a sense of self based on what I see about me reflected in your gaze and in your eyes. Right? So how does a child develop a sense of self? Well, as, as mum is cuddling the baby and breastfeeding and the kid looks up into mum's eyes, what does the, the child is building a sense of self. What are they seeing in mum's eyes? Uh, if mum's awake, um, <laughs> they're, they're seeing love. They're seeing that, that there's a, a safe reliable person who will meet their needs because a moment before they were yelling and crying and hungry and about to starve to death and it was terrible and the world was about to end and then suddenly they look in mum's eyes and they go it's all okay i'm powerful i can get the i can get god to meet my needs now god is mum at this point right i can get god to meet i can i can change the world to meet my needs and i'm valuable I'm powerful and I'm valuable and I see that in mum's eyes as I, as, I, as I breastfeed. And that's, how, that's massively important. I mean, those are, those are both 
both lies, by the way, right? You know, we're not, that, we're not the center of the universe, we're not that powerful, and we're not that loved. But that comes later, the harsh reality of our own insignificance in the universe. But you've got to know it, you've got to learn it. So I see who I am in the gaze of others. But if I'm, how does that work if I'm still doing that as an adult? And if I'm captive to that? I mean, who am I then? You see, this is the problem with identity. Because the problem is, I'm looking to you for your approval of me. So I look in your eyes. I mean, even now I'm doing it. And and what am I seeing? Well, I'm I'm seeing that, you know, what am I seeing? Maybe I'm seeing and inferring that you think I'm competent. And you think I'm worth listening to. You might think I'm a little funny. You might think that I'm trustworthy. You might think that I'm caring. You might think that I'm spiritual. But you might not, actually, because you know what? You're, you're sitting there. I, I don't actually know. I'm judging a whole bunch. Because the thing is, the problem is, you're sitting where you're sitting, and you're looking at me, and what you're judging is, well, what are you seeing about you reflected in me? You know, are you worthwhile? Are you enough? Are you religious enough? Are you pious enough? Are you kind enough? Are you compliant enough? You're, you're making, so we're in this dance always, aren't we, of like, I'm looking to you to learn about me and you're looking to me to learn about you, but I'm actually, I'm, uh, my, what I'm thinking about you is not actually a particularly accurate reflection of you, is it? Like I'm a distorted mirror because I've got all my own stuff. I'm actually not thinking much about you right now. I'm more thinking about how you're thinking about me. So don't rely on what I think about you to learn about how you should think about you because I'm thinking about you only to the extent that I'm thinking about how you think about me. Now, we'll get a bit of act, but it's, we're, we're distorted mirrors, okay? So that's part of the problem. And it'll change um, in all kinds of ways. So it creates internal dissonance. It can't, creates a, a, like an unstable self, it'll create an unstable self. It, it disconnects us from God. So it makes us miserable, but it disconnects us from God because, um, you know, God takes our choices enormously seriously. So here's the, the, the wonderful and also the terrifying thing about Christianity and about our humanity. Our choices, your choice, is fundamental to who you are as a human being, our capacity to choose. And the story of Christianity uh, is the story of God respecting those choices with the utmost seriousness, right? He never, he, if, if we say no to God, God honors that. If we say yes to God, God honors that. And that's what Jesus says. If you build your life on the approval of others, not on the approval of God, God will honor that. He will step out of your life and say, you build your life on what others think of you. Don't worry about me. Right? That's why it cuts off our connection from God. Because God just becomes one other being that I refer to occasionally. And he'll allow us to do that. He'll allow us to do that. And that's not great, is it? I mean, we, we actually need God desperately. 
We, but, but because he values us as adults, he's not going to override our choices. So it's a perilous position we're in. It's perilous. That's why he says, that's why Jesus says here, I find it fascinating, right? He says here, be careful. Like, like this is an insidious, creeping danger for all of us. Is it not? Is it not? That we, we actually get what we want. We get what we want. Uh, and what we want, we find in the end, is not actually what is life-giving. See, what I actually need, what I actually need is to see myself in the eyes of somebody who sees me as I truly actually am and accepts me unconditionally in a loving way who is perfectly always only uh, after my good. And is not the, what I need to see is to see myself in the eyes of someone who is an accurate mirror of me to build myself on an accurate reflection of me. So this is the solution, right? This is what God says. I mean, this is the amazing truth about Christianity, is that uh, God says you've got a choice. You can live for the approval of others, or you can live for an audience of one. This is what Christianity, this is what Jesus is going to say. Uh, Live for the approval of God alone. And what we find is when we live for the approval of God alone, it's the precondition for psychological wellness, for flourishing in our families and in our relationships and in our community. Because think about it for a moment, right? When I, if, the, if the God that Jesus Christ brings to us and opens up for us is true and really exists, if that's the case, then what do I see about myself in the eyes of God? When I look at God, and when God looks at me, what do I see reflected back? Well, I see myself as I really am. What does that mean? Uh, I see that I know that God sees me as I am, which is incredibly important because one of the problems of building a sense of self based on what you think of me is that you don't see me as I really am. You're distorted by your own thinking, but, but there's also a lot of me that is hidden that is not accessible to you. So the problem is in relationships, what if you see me as I really am? What then? Would you accept me? Well, there's only one, one being in the universe who sees us as we really are. And that's God. And he sees us as we really are all the time. Like, you can't, this is what the psalmist says, you can't run away from God, you can't hide from God. Wherever you go, God goes with you. And he sees everything, which is kind of terrifying, isn't it? He sees your heart. He sees your motives. He sees your inner drives. And when you look at God... That's what you see. You see in God a being who sees you truly and deeply and eternally. And that is terrifying. But that's not all, is it? What else do you see? You see a God who sees you as you are and who loves you as you are. 
who seeing you as you are is just full to overflowing with complete acceptance of you and of me an utter love no that's amazing there is no other being in the world who has such perfect acceptance of us whilst still seeing us as we are i know full well that for most of you your acceptance of me is based upon me meeting a certain number of key performance sort of hurdles right for sure i doubt there are many of you apart from maybe margo and even that might be stretching the friendship who um because this is the way we are if you really understood me and if i really misbehaved terribly would you still accept me and love me and we'd all go oh yes we would really what if i was in jail for pedophilia would you come and visit me would you hold my hand would you look me in the eyes and say i love you and i hate you but i love you god is the only being who will do that now not suggesting for a moment that's where i'm headed um but you see the point like our approval the approval of others is very fickle very transient and based on our performance god is utterly unlike that god sees you as you are all everything and and the amazing amazing truth of the gospel is there's nothing in us that can make god love us any less and it's not a love that's based on denial or pretense or minimization it's not god going ah oh, wink wink nudge nudge i won't look at that bit of you my oh. it's psychologically unbelievably liberating over the years i've done a whole lot of marriage preparation with couples uh, particularly at our church in melbourne we had a bluestone national trust listed church had a lot of people from the community and around town wanting to get married and i i prepare all these a lot of these young couples for marriage and most of them weren't religious uh, at all in fact the vast majority weren't and we talk about what role could god have in your marriage and so here's what i would say i tried all sorts of ways to get them to think and in the end i resorted to this i'd say if you really know if you really let god into your life the uh evidence is that you will have a more satisfying and passionate love life than you would have otherwise and they'd all go huh huh i thought god didn't like love lives and i'd say no listen there's a family and relationship uh researcher and therapist called david snarch and he's written some amazing work and snarch developed this concept of self-validated or other validated intimacy and he said the big problem in most long-term partnerships is they are actually intimacy is terrifying and we're largely incapable of it and what makes us incapable of genuine intimacy over the long term is that our sense of self is validated by the other person's approval of us so we're in this dance right this is what snarch said you want to wreck intimacy in a long-term marriage base your sense of self on how the other person sees you because then you are never free to really be you you're never free to really take any risks and you're never free to know that you're loved for for you're loved irrespective of anything else 
So you've got to run and hide, and you've got to always negotiate approval, and intimacy is terrifying. And I said, ah, but if God, if, if there is a God, and you are utterly secure in God's love for you, that is a precondition for actually making genuine intimacy in a long-term relationship work. So uh, follow God, involve him in your marriage, you'll have a better love life. Uh, they weren't all convinced by this, um, but I think it's true. Uh, this is what happens when we live for an audience of one. When God's approval of me matters more than anyone else's approval of me, I'm paradoxically free to love and serve others, to not be a slave to what they think of me. And we have to be careful of this. Uh, of course, you could, answer, you could ask yourself, well, hang on, doesn't that make me a sociopath, like if I don't care what anyone else thinks? <laughs> Uh, a religious nut? Uh, no, not really, because um, the thing that rescues this is, hmm, if all that matters to me is hearing at the end of my life Jesus saying to me, well done, good and faithful servant, if that's what really matters, what sort of life am I going to live? Is it going to be the life of a sociopath? It's going to be a life of unfettered, flowing agape love that's what it's going to be like if all that matters to me is the audience of one if if i know that tomorrow what matters is what jesus thinks of me and everything i do is to get his approval and i see that his approval is given to me unconditionally anyway then that that frees me up to love people who are unlovable it frees me up to love my enemy to pray for those who persecute me as we talked about last week right it frees me to say hard things to people and risk their rejection. It, it frees me to, to have genuine intimacy in my closest relationships. It frees me to set boundaries for my kids, even when it might mean them storming out of the house and not wanting to speak to me again. It frees me to set boundaries in a church and say, this is what's acceptable and this is what isn't. This is where we're going. This is where we're not going. And, and you know what? Your acceptance or rejection of me doesn't because what we're doing is building a church for the audience of one and we're loving each other. It frees me to take difficult political stances, you know? And not be just carried along by what's popular, but be carried along by the love of Jesus for all, right? That's what, that's what it means to live for the audience of one. Life of radical sacrifice. And Jesus gives an illustration of this uh, by, uh, with giving. And this is just an illustration, right? It's not, a, it's not another rule. Um, but it's a very common one. So he says, and it's going to segue into a whole bunch of the rest of chapter 6 where he talks about how we need to not build our lives on the pursuit of material wealth. So he says, here's a really practical example. When you give money away, do not announce it with trumpets. Now, apparently this was a practice. It seems a little weird these days, this day and age, you know. The offertory plate comes along, it stops in front of you, the trumpeter starts. Oh, Valerie's going to put money in the plate. Goes along, way. Dan and Belinda are going to put money in the plate. Spotlight on them. They all give money. Seems that that's the sort of thing that happened. Now, we're, we're much more sophisticated in that these days. Um, uh, but, but we all know if you want to raise money from people, give them some recognition, right? Put their, the... If you want to get a lot of money from people, a lot of money from really rich people, put their names on the wing of the hospital or the building. The Fred Nurk 
center for whatever. Oh, yes, Fred feels great. I'll write you a check for 100 million. Um, that's, the, that's the crass thing. But, but you know what? There's an even... Uh, so, so we're not to do that. We're not to give in order to be seen and to be honored. Because if you do that, you've got your reward. Um, but it doesn't mean that you are not to let anyone know what you're doing. That's, but you're not to give in order to be seen, though obviously some people will see your giving, and that's okay. Uh, this is what he says. Uh, generosity, giving to the poor, assumes that we give without regard for the praise of others. That's the first bit. But then, and that's obvious, but then look at verse 3. There's this weird and four. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. When you give to the needy, which is just assumed, by the way, that we're generous and we care for the poor, uh, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so you're giving maybe in secret. Have any of you heard that? You've read that verse before? Can I see a hand here? How many of you are confident you know what that means? Yeah, a few of you? Okay. Well, eh. Like, it can't be, he can't mean that literally. Like, because you always, like, I can't, I have to, I know what both hands, like, I can't, I'm forgetting what my, it doesn't work. So what does it mean? I think what it means is this. You know, when you're driving a car, uh, and if you're very, very familiar, and you've been driving for a long time, and, uh, and perhaps it's a manual car, uh, you're going around a corner, and as you're going around the corner, you know, you're flicking the indicator on, and you're changing gears, and you're doing the clutch, and you're doing the accelerator, and you're checking the mirrors. Are you thinking about all of that stuff consciously? You just do it. It's muscle memory. It's, it's tacit knowledge of what it's required to do this. You just, it's your second nature. You don't think about it. And I think what Jesus is saying is this. When we give in the way of the kingdom, when we live for an audience of one and our generosity flows from, from only the approval of God, not wanting others' approval, this is what happens. We, we just do it without thinking about it. We're not conscious of it, uh, which, which is this point. The way to put it is don't give for the approval of others, but also don't give for your own inner self-praise and self-congratulation. Now, I'm sure many of you here give generously, and I'm sure most of you don't have your name in lights when you give. I certainly know I don't, but let me tell you what I do do. When I give, man, my left hand knows what my right hand is doing, and there's a little bit inside of me that goes, whew, man, I am, mm, I'm one generous person. I'm so good. Aren't I great, Lord? Look at me, how generous I am. And, and Jesus is saying, no, no, even that, that's not how we're meant to give. Because we, when we live for the audience of one, we step into the glorious freedom of self-forgetfulness. I don't worry about what you think of me, but guess what? I don't even worry about what me thinks of me. I have freedom. I'm self-forgetful. I don't, I'm not building a sense of self on my own reflections upon my own worthiness like whoa i'm this great generous person i don't even think about that what i'm thinking i'm forgetting myself and just thinking about how i can meet the needs of others that's what it means and you don't remember it you don't build a sense of self well i'm i'm quite the generous person 
I've done so much. You, you may not tell anyone that. You probably don't because you're sophisticated enough to know that in our circles you don't parade your generosity. But in your heart, it can be just as bad. You can be living for blowing your own trumpet, as it were, on the inside. And that's what Jesus is saying we shouldn't do. And we have to be careful because it's insidious, isn't it? I, maybe not for you. You may be far more spiritually evolved than me. I find it insidious that I can live for my own praise, puffing my own self up. So we're to not... Uh, not let self-praise, self-congratulation uh, shape and drive and motivate us. And that's what it is to be done in secret. So in one sense, everything is done in secret because I'm not worrying. I'm not, even, I'm not even noticing it. I don't notice my own generosity. This is how um, uh, Dallas Willard summarizes it. Uh, the one who gives without regard to who is looking and does not even notice it as anything special themselves, no big deal, is the very one who has God's attention and becomes God's creative partner in well-doing. He or she will know the fellowship of God and see the effects of these deeds multiplied for good in the power of God. That's it. If you, that's how we work with God. That's where the spiritual power comes, from the freedom of self-forgetfulness built on a life that is lived for the audience of one that is psychologically integrated, holistic, able to form deep, intimate relationships and live lives of great generosity in the world. So, how do you connect with God and live a great life? Live for an audience of one. Find yourself in Christ and in how he sees you. So bad that he had to die, but so loved that he was glad to die for you. That's what we see, and when you see that, it changes everything. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you, uh, that in you, um, gosh, we, we actually get a whole, whole path of psychological and economic and relational flourishing. That if we live with you, you will use us mightily and greatly and you'll rescue us from hypocrisy and you'll change our relationships and you'll use us to change the world. So, Lord, may that be true for each of us today. Help us to, even this morning, do a course correct in our lives. Shift our focus from others and from ourselves. And uh, shift our focus to you, to live for you, uh, for an audience of one. And we ask this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.